Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm working solo tonight. My co-host Sal Dietry is on business travel, so I'm here in the booth alone. But uh, I'm excited about our guest. Uh, I'm often shocked when I'm reminded that there are over 2.2 million prisoners in the U.S. And I've often thought, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow harness their potential, give them meaningful work, and pay fair wages that they could use to help their families outside of prison? Well, tonight's guest has done just that. Since 2010, Pete Oakes, the CEO of Capital Three, has run a business, or two businesses actually, inside the maximum and medium security prisons at the Hutchinson Correctional Facility in Kansas. Pete joins us to talk about how these businesses came about, the profound effect that they've had on everybody involved, and the lessons he's learned over his 40-plus year career. Pete, welcome to Grace in 30. Well, Ed, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I was really excited when I heard about your story from uh, Hugh Welchel. I don't think I've ever heard about something quite similar to this, because we hear about people working in prison, but they typically make 15 cents an hour or 15 cents a day, and, and you're paying these people fair wages. You're teaching them some skills that are really quite unique, and uh, you're really helping them to sort of uh, have a sense of dignity and purpose. So I'd, I'd like to tell our listeners how this all came about. Certainly. Well, Ed, we had a, a rapidly growing manufacturing company in the town of Hutchinson, Kansas, a town of about 40,000, and we were having a very difficult time finding uh, manufacturing labor. We were hiring work release inmates, and those, of course, came from the prison every day. They were brought to our facility, and they would work with us, and then they'd be taken back to prison at night. The warden came to us and said, Pete, if you could figure out a way to move part of your manufacturing business inside of the prison. I've got 1,100 guys looking for a job and something to do. So with that, we uh, began this grand experiment. And Kansas happens to be one of the leaders in private industry and prisons. So the state of Kansas has, um, we are in a maximum security and the medium security facility, and we lease about 50,000 square feet from the state of Kansas inside the walls of these two prisons and uh, employ uh, 160 to 180 inmates on any given day. The types of businesses, what are they? So we actually have two different manufacturing businesses. One is called Seat King. We manufacture industrial seating primarily for the off-road industry. That would be uh, commercial turf lawnmowers, uh, the agricultural industry. We do do some medical wheelchairs, things like that. And then we also have another uh, business called Electrix. We manufacture electrical assemblies, wiring harnesses, control panels, and those types of things, oftentimes for the same uh, piece of equipment that our seat goes on. So oftentimes our customers are the same customer for both Electrix and Seeking. How does this business affect these prisoners and their families and the prison? Give Give us a sense of the impact of these businesses. It's amazing, and I had no idea how much it would impact them until after we'd been in uh, and working there a couple of months. But um, first of all, just economically, uh, most inmates in the state of Kansas, if they work for the state of Kansas doing some type of a job, they'll earn 50 cents a day. We pay them fair market value wages. In fact, we don't even set the wage. The state of Kansas sets the wage based on their technical skills. So if they're a welder, they might make 14 or $15 an hour. If they're just kind of an entry-level employee, they may, they may make 8 or $9 an hour. So 
when you pay them a fair wage, uh, it's amazing what happens to their families. It costs them 17 cents a minute to talk on the phone to their families. So if you're making 50 cents a day, you simply do not have communication with your family. Most of our inmates will probably spend 30 to 40 to $50 per week visiting with their family. That connection alone to their family uh, is amazing. They're able to send money out to their family. They have relationships with their kids. They buy them clothes. They pay the tuition. They also pay, um, oftentimes, the government will take out child support or restitution. Uh, I was talking to one of our inmates the other day, and he had just finished up paying $12,000 in uh, restitution for a robbery that he had committed uh, seven or eight years ago. Wow. And this sounds, I've never heard about about something like this where the fair wages have been paid. Is Is this extremely rare, or do you know of other people that are doing this? This is fairly rare. There are a number of states that do this, Kansas being one of the leaders. North Carolina is also very active in private industry and prison. But there are a number of states uh, that do do it, but not very many. Do you find, are there other companies or other business people that contact you occasionally and say, hey, I'd like to do the same thing. Give me some advice on how to go about doing it? Yes, uh, Probably every five or six weeks, we literally have now had to go uh, go to providing tours for people from all over the country. I was giving two and three tours a week for a while, so now we just said about every five or six weeks we'll spend a day. So people come in from all over the country. Uh, we've had um, we've had governors and congressmen and various people from around the country come to come to visit us for a day and. We are starting to see movement throughout the country that I think will uh, provide an impetus to, to spread this uh, really good thing around the country. Yeah, I was going to ask, it's it's great to do tours, but is there actual change occurring out there? In the video, it was amazing. There were two prisoners that were interviewed, and I'm sure there are more in the full-length documentary, but one of the guys said he was laughing. He said when, when Pete came in here and said he was going to make this the best prison in the U.S., we thought he was crazy. And, and another man said, hey, I'm, I'm here 37 years, and I'm finally growing up as a man. I mean, it was incredibly compelling to see someone yeah. like this. I mean, these, these people are truly the least of these in society, real cast-offs in society. Is there a story or two that's particularly compelling or transformational that you'd like to share with us about a particular prisoner you've been working with? Uh, sure. In fact, it's interesting that you bring this up because I had lunch with one of them today, believe it or not. That's great. And uh, this was an inmate who came to work for us uh, six or seven years ago. Uh, he was in for murder at the age of 17. He had murdered an individual. And he was uh, 39, uh, six or seven years ago when he came to work for us. Uh, he, it was interesting. In fact, he actually gave a little talk today at this luncheon we were at. And it showed his rap, se- rap sheet. And it showed the number of years or the number of months, actually, that he had left when he came in and it was 9,999 their computer wouldn't go any higher so he they literally just maxed out 9,999 months he was in for life but through a number of circumstances one of those being the ability to work for us um louis uh when when i personally shared with him that my vision was to have the best prison in the state of kansas he literally laughed at me but over time as we began to truly care for them as we began to treat them with dignity, as we began to share the hope that they could have in Christ. Uh, Louis changed, and he became a very hard worker. 
And essentially what happened is, for the first time in many, many years, he had hope. He had hope that he could become something different than what he was. And literally that little bit of hope transformed him. And so uh, he was actually released. I spoke at his uh, parole hearing. I spoke twice. The first time he didn't get out. The second time he did. I'd become really good friends with his family. He is now out uh, running his own business and doing very well. And I'm so proud of this young man. And there are there are others uh, that I could tell you that uh, have had the same great success. So are there people that criticize ever the work you're doing? I mean, you're, you're working with people. I mean, they, he's paid his price. He was in jail. I'm assuming he was in prison for 20-some years, well over 20 yes. years. And, yes. and I'm sure that did the skills that he learned while working at your business in prison help him to, to start that business when he got out? Yes. I would say there are probably two criticisms, Ed. One is that uh, most people think that we are literally uh, using this, these men as slave labor because they think they're either being paid 50 cents a day or nothing, okay? So number one, we're paying them a fair market wage that we don't even set. Um, number two is we get a criticism, well, why are you hiring murderers and rapists and thieves when there are lots of other people without work? And just frankly, what we found in Hutchinson, Kansas, nobody wants to work manufacturing in the United States anymore. It's hard physical labor, and you get paid 10 to $15 an hour. So what... Uh, we have an agreement with the state of Kansas that our civilian employees always come first. If we have layoffs, we always lay off inmates first. Uh, so consequently, um, we think that that it is a great thing for these men. And if you look at the cost of recidivism, you know, the average recidivism rate in the United States is about 65%. Kansas is about 35%. Men who work for us and go through our program, it's less than 10%. And the average cost of him, uh, having an inmate in a, a prison on an annual basis exceeds $30,000 a year. So you just don't want these people back in. We think the cost to society, it, it's a very good thing for society to train these men so that they don't come back. Yeah, we had uh, James Ackerman on uh, a couple of shows, uh, the head of Prison Fellowship. And uh, when you offer these inmates training, hope, programs on how to, how to conduct themselves, not only as employees, as human beings, and then you give them something to do after they get out of prison, give them a mentorship, uh, some sort of a coach or someone that comes alongside of them, the recidivism rates just drop through the floor. It's amazing. Um, I, I wanted to ask you in particular, because we talked on the phone, how this has affected you because it really resonated with you with this whole program and sort of has led to a personal transformation in your life. So why don't you share a little bit with us about that? Yes, well, that's been quite a journey. I think if I were honest with you, the reason we originally went into the prison was because I needed a labor force. But within a few months of being inside the prison, I quickly realized that while we were dealing with murders, rapists, drug dealers, guys that had committed really serious crimes, they were still individuals and that they could still be redeemed by the saving grace of Christ. And I think a few months after we had been in the prison, I came to a whole new philosophy of why we were in there. I, I said, well, let's 
let's start programs where we can rehabilitate and we can really change the inmate. The fact of the matter is I think they changed me more than I changed them. And it was simply from a perspective of seeing seeing humanity at its lowest point. Uh, prisons are literally deserts of human flourishing. There is no, they have no jobs, so consequently they have no money. They uh, have very few relationships, and the relationships they do have are typically uh, built around gangs and power and prestige, so they aren't true, truly loving relationships like you and I get to experience on the outside. Yeah, a lot of violence. Lots of violence, tremendous amounts of violence. And lastly, they... Uh, there are a number, uh, prison does drive a number of them to a spiritual awakening, which is good, but it's still really a desert of what we would call economic, social, and spiritual capital. And when we came in and began to give them a job and led with economic capital, um, the transformation that I saw in them, which ultimately affected me, was that if you do someone's, if you do something good for someone, if you do something for the common good, the to see them begin to flourish economically, and then we came in right behind that, and we treated them with dignity and respect. We treated them not as murderers and rapists, but as true human beings. All of a sudden, their countenance changed. They began to trust us, and when we led with those two things, all of a sudden, the doors to spiritual capital, as it were, flew open. So... For instance, um, you know, over the last six or seven months, we've had over 50 inmates come to Christ uh, simply because I think we led with economic and social capital. It takes me back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, uh, the priest and the Levite were walking down the road, and they saw the, the Samaritan that was, or the, uh, the guy that was in trouble by the side of the road, and it says they walked around him. And I'm just imagining to myself, they looked at him and they probably said, you know, buddy, if you would just get Jesus, everything would be fine. But then here you had the Good Samaritan came along. And what he did was he, I think he, he, he reached out with economic and social capital. He picked him up. He took him to the hotel. He bought his room. He told the guy to fix him up. And he said, I'll even pay more if needed. And when we do that, I think as Christians, we are so oftentimes um, judgmental that we, instead of lo truly loving people by reaching out economically and socially, relationally, for the common good, that we miss many opportunities. So that is, I think, the transformation that probably took place in my own heart. So, Pete, let's talk a little bit about um, your career, because when we spoke on the phone, you told me you had uh, been an investment banker in your 30s and did quite well. And yet, uh, despite making a lot of money, you weren't very satisfied. And, and something happened, and that sort of has changed your definition of success over the years. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Uh, certainly. I grew up a farm kid in Kansas, uh, graduated to college, went into the commercial banking business, and spent eight years doing that. At the uh, at about the age of 30, I had a very entrepreneurial itch. So I left the commercial banking business and started my own investment banking business. So for the next 10 years, from the age of 30 to 40, um, I was really in the investment banking business, and I would tell you that uh, one of my primary motives in life was to make a lot of money. I 
um, I grew up in a Christian family, and uh, my parents were always very generous, and so I was always very generous, or thought I was. And um, I defined that as, of course, tithing my my income. Uh, I I woke up at the age of 40 and realized that I had been uh, successful by the world standards, but I was still not satisfied. And um, thankfully, I had a mentor who had been mentoring for a number of years, and I just, I was, had always hid that feeling back because I thought it was something that wasn't, a Christian shouldn't think that way. And so uh, thankfully, over a several months period, he really worked through the idea of ownership versus stewardship. And this, this is when the light went on for me. I'd realized that over the last 40 years, the first 40 years of my life, I treated myself as an owner instead of a steward. I, uh, I took pride in the fact I was a 90-10 guy. I wanted to make a lot of money so that my 10% to God would be a big number. And I didn't understand stewardship. But once that concept was presented to me and the light went on, it literally changed my life. So I talk about going from success to significance at the age of 40. So during the next 10 years, I was in what I call my significant part of life. We did very well. We made, we continued to make, uh, do very well financially. But what changed was we gave substantial amounts of money away. I think, unfortunately, towards the end of that 10-year run, um, being an entrepreneur, being a businessman, I began to measure my status with God by the amount of money that I was giving away, which was wrong, but I, but I did that. I needed a measurement stick, and the, num- the amount of checks I wrote every year was that tool. In 2001, of course, 9-11 hit. Our businesses... Uh, within 90 days dropped 50%. We began to bleed red ink, uh, cash evaporated, our generosity evaporated. And I looked at God and I said, God, don't you understand what I have done for you? And uh, once again, my mentors came around and beside me. And over a few months period, I really realized that God didn't want my money. He wanted my heart. Amen. And so this started my last my last phase of life. So I went from at the age of 40 I went from success to significance at the age of 50 when 9/11 hit. I went from what I would say significance to surrender. I think what God really wants, he wants 100% of us. He wants to take everything we have, everything we will do and drop it and put it at his feet. It's being all in. It's not, I I talk about success as being, uh, holding on tightly to the things that Pete accomplished. I talk about significance as holding on lightly with open hands so that God can use them. But I think surrender is where we take our hands, we dump them upside down, and everything we have becomes his. And that was, uh, ever since that time, that really started us on a new view of how we should uh, do business. And that has uh, that's been, uh, again, another transformational thing for me. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you, you had equated stewardship with financial generosity, but 
you were with a couple of guys and you were all saying, well, how much do we make beyond which we give to God? And you and after some period of time, you came back together and said, we got it wrong. Everything is his. And it's a matter of, you know, how we manage it uh, to best serve him and serve people around us. And uh, I, I thought that story was fascinating, uh, how you did. I don't know if you want to share a little bit of that. And, and maybe that's a good segue into, you know, your, your capital three business right now. What you call it a triple bottom line you're working on. It's a little different than the traditional triple bottom line, which is social, environmental, and financial. But you're really building the, the financial, social, and spiritual capital inside companies. So are these yes. sort of your three pillars of the business you're working right now? Yes. Back, you brought up a very, I think, important point. Something that has really uh, impacted my life was not only mentors that were older, but mentors that were peers. And I think 20 years ago, there were four of us that happened to go to a conference, and one of the speakers at the con- conference asked us, how much is enough? Uh, at what point in time will we quit accumulating for ourselves? And so the four of us met, and we all came up with a number, two, three, four, five million dollars. And we agreed that every year we would come back, and at the point in time we exceeded that number, we would, the rest of us would hold that person accountable to giving it away to doing something. Well, within a few short years, we blew, we all blew by those numbers, and we came back together and quickly realized that I think the question was this, why is the first two or three or four or five or 10 million mine and everything else God's? The real thing is it's 100% his, 0% mine, and I'm just the steward. So we quickly realized that it's not the amount of assets or possessions that God is allowing us to steward. Our question really came back to what should we be paid to manage those assets? So for the last 20 years, the four of us have met three to four times a year, and we have just held each other accountable to living um, middle-class lifestyles where our incomes have gone up substantially, but our standard of living has maintained. And that's consequently has allowed us to give away uh, substantially uh, more amounts of money. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the video, you and your wife, you've, you've got a budget, and it's actually freeing to have that budget, which would sound strange to most people. Yes, that's it is so true. I, I just don't have to spend very much time worrying about what the next thing I'm going to buy. <laughs> I, spend, I just spend a lot of time saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with the assets I have to further your kingdom? And it just, it is so freeing, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I have a friend or minister guy who's been all throughout the the Muslim countries, a wonderful man. He says, I have all the money I need to do whatever God wants me to do when he wants me to do it. <laughs> That's all I need. Exactly. So we've got a couple more minutes, and I want to make sure that I give you some time. We, we like to have our guests always issue a call to action or two or three, and even share whatever on their heart at this particular time with the listeners. So how would you like to challenge the audience to step forward? Is there any way they can do similar things to what you're doing, or can you issue a general call to our to our listeners? Um, sure. Um, I think two things. Um, first of all, I would just challenge our listeners to really understand success, significance, and surrender. I believe that the world calls us to success. I believe Jesus calls us to surrender. The problem is when in America, where we have been so blessed materialistically, that the reason we are do not have the impact that we should have as Christians is because we have one foot 
in success and one foot in surrender. And we are what is talked about in Revelations 3 as being lukewarm. And we understand what God will do if we are lukewarm. He will spew us out. If I'm honest with you again, I probably spend much of my life being satisfied. It is so difficult to be surrendered because it takes huge amounts of faith. But when I can get out on that edge, when I can truly live a life in faith, um, boy, uh, the times that I've done that, to see God show up uh, has just been so rewarding and so um, fulfilling that I just I want to do it again and again and again. That's outstanding. Um, I, I did want to mention our website, EnterpriseStewardship.com. There, there are a handful of documentaries that have been done. One of them is about, uh, they're called Deal Makers. One of them is about uh, your business, and I encourage people to go to that site and check out the two-minute uh, clip of the work you're doing in the prisons. It's amazing. Um, thanks, Pete, so much for joining us. We love what you're doing to contribute to the flourishing of people, and especially those that really seem cast out by our society. Uh, if listeners want to find out more about Pete's business, please visit his website at Capital3.com, and that's an III.com. And again, you see, can see the Dealmakers video at the website EnterpriseStewardship.com. This is Ed and Pete signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace. Grace.